But let's, um, let's just help ourselves to get a grip of this letter by going through those simple questions. Who's it from? Well, it's from the Apostle Paul. That's simple. Although you may notice in verse 1 he mentions another person, Sosthenes. And if you read the letters carefully in the New Testament, you find Paul did not work on his own. Often there are other people mentioned who wrote the letters along with him. He wasn't just a one-man band. He worked with others, although he led. That's significant and worth noticing. Okay, so sometimes he was by himself, but usually with others. Who was Paul? Well, verse 1 says he's an apostle. That is significant to the letter. It always is. The way Paul introduces himself in each New Testament letter relates to what's coming up. You see, the Corinthians, they, they weren't impressed with Paul and they didn't really accept his authority. They said he's an unimpressive-looking person, and he's an an unimpressive-sounding person. They were more impressed by people who were showy. And so he's got to assert, however poor he looked, he's got God's authority, appointed by God. Who's it to? It's to the church in Corinth. And how they described, verse 2, they're sanctified. That means they are set apart for God. God has already set them apart for himself. They are also, verse 2, called to be holy. In other words, to be different for God. And again, it isn't by coincidence that Paul puts these things in because the problem was in Corinth, sadly, they weren't being different from society around them. The main problem in this letter is their culture was shaping them. So let's have a think more. What was that culture? Let's think about the people and place the letter went to. Let's have a map up. It went to Corinth. Corinth was a city in Greece. And you might be able to see there, it's right next to the sea on one side and almost next to the sea on the other side, which made it a very significant port. And as a result, a very rich city. And that shaped it. It was a city that was rich, successful and proud. Sadly, that was shaping the people in the church. It was a city that used to have an ancient elite, but that had largely gone. And now its elite were the rich, were people who had abilities that look impressive, were people who were glamorous. Those were the new elite. And that made it a culture where it was possible to climb the ladder socially. And that's something people were keen on doing, social climbing. It made it a culture of self-promotion. Self-promotion was really the key characteristic of their culture. And that self-promotion culture affected so many areas. So, for example, sexual life became, it's all about me, me, me. What I want, getting for myself. It affected their sexual life, made it a very immoral city. It meant that they overvalued showy gifts and they didn't value humble service. It meant they valued, because it's this culture of self-promotion, what can be seen now and experienced now, not waiting patiently for later, certainly not eternity. Oh, no, that's pie in the sky when you die. I want it now. And this self-promotion as always, resulted in division. It was a divided culture. Different groups competing with each other. 
Now, I've just described Corinth 2,000 years ago, but haven't I also just described UK in 2023? I think it's an almost exact match. And that makes 1 Corinthians very relevant to us. Okay, what were our questions? Um, Thanks, Eula, we can remove the uh, map. Who's it from, Paul? Who's it to, Corinth? Why was it written? What prompted it? Did you spot? He got three sources of information. He heard from Chloe's household some information, and he heard there was trouble in the church. He'd got a letter from them. In fact, it turns out when you read that there have been various letters going to and from Paul and the Corinthians. What we call 1 Corinthians wasn't really the first letter to the Corinthians. There had been more. And the letter gave questions they had for Paul. And then he also had three people visit him from Corinth. That was chapter 16, verse 17. We don't know what they said to Paul. But it makes it a letter that deals with very specific issues in Corinth. And that's why you've got to do a fair bit of detective work when you read 1 Corinthians. What's going on here? What has Paul heard from them? What's the issue that he's addressing here? And so 1 Corinthians addresses very specific issues in their church. Eula, could we have the uh, table up? Here are some of the difficult issues that were going on in their church that that it addresses. Unity, immorality, court cases, marriage, idol worship, men and women, the Lord's Supper, spiritual gifts, worship together and resurrection. 1 Corinthians is full of different, difficult, controversial topics. And it could look quite unconnected, but behind them is a common problem. They are too much like their culture. And it's behind all these problems. And behind that is this. They, they're more impressed by what their culture values than by the cross of Jesus. And so while 1 Corinthians will give specific answers to these problems, it will keep bringing them back to this. The answer is appreciate the cross. Everything must be cross-shaped. See how everything should be cross-shaped. The cross is not just for conversion, it's the shape of Christian living and the church's activities. And so Paul starts with that underlying theme in chapter 1, verse 18 to 31. That first he wants to get across before he gets into the specifics, because they must first see everything needs to be cross-shaped. So, thank you, Eula, for the table. That was a much longer introduction than normal. And we're now going to get into those verses, 18 to 31, in two parts. So the rest of this evening is verses 18 to 31 in two parts. First part, the pattern of the cross in verses 18 to 25. We have the pattern of the cross The pattern of the cross at Golgotha, verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. Outside Jerusalem, at a place called Golgotha, we sometimes say Calvary. Do you know the word Calvary is not in the Bible? That came later. Its name back then was Golgotha. 
At a place called Golgotha, three men were crucified. They were nailed to crosses, naked. The ultimate disgrace. It couldn't be done to a Roman citizen. wasn't allowed. However bad they'd been, it is too much of a disgrace. Nothing could be weaker than a naked man, nailed to a cross, completely helpless, drained of blood and breath, certain to die. Nothing could be weaker. Nothing could be more disgraceful. And we say that one of them was the Son of God saving the world. How foolish! How weak! And so it was thought back then. Archaeologists have discovered graffiti in 2nd century Rome. Do you know graffiti is the oldest form of art in the world? And they discovered... Graffiti in 2nd century AD Rome, it was a drawing of a man bowing down before a figure on the cross, and the figure on the cross has a donkey's head. And underneath it says, Alexamenos worships his God. Whoever this Alexamenos was, seems he was a Christian, and his friends thought it was a ridiculous joke that he worshipped a man who died on a cross. Because it's a disgrace, it's folly, it's weakness. Have we forgotten that? We're used to the symbol, aren't we? Yeah, we're used to seeing it everywhere. We're used to hearing about it. Have we forgotten what it's really like? A few years ago, we had an Easter card. And on the front was a grenade with a flower growing out of it. And some people didn't want to deliver it. In fact, I remember someone saying, we don't want that. We want something nice that people can put on their shelf, like a cross. Something nice, like a cross. Have we lost the plot? That is like putting through people's letterbox a card with on the front a man hanging from the gallows. And inside it says, that man is the answer to all the world needs. Have we forgotten the folly and weakness of the cross? Verse 18 tells us the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. What's the opposite of foolishness? Genuine question, someone tell us. Wisdom. The opposite of foolishness is wisdom. But what does verse 18 say? To them, those people who are perishing, the cross is foolishness. To us, it's, what does it say? Power. You'd expect it would say to them foolishness, to us wisdom. But it says to them foolishness, to us power. You see, the Corinthians were impressed with clever ideas. And Paul wants them to know the cross is not just a cleverer idea. It's not just a cleverer idea. Cleverer ideas won't save sinners. God's power is needed to save sinners. And the cross was where that power was exercised and sin was dealt with. Tom Holland is a historian. I wonder if anyone's heard of Tom Holland. He's quite a famous historian. He's also an atheist. But he's written a book called Dominion. 
And it's about how Christian belief in the cross has changed lives and shaped the world as we know it. And Tom Holland, although he's an atheist, says people don't today don't recognise just how much this belief in the cross has shaped our society and our belief in human rights and our way we think the weak ought to be treated. That wasn't around until the Christian belief in the cross. Now, Tom Holland thinks that is just an idea or a principle because he's an atheist. No, it's not. It's God's power. But Tom Holland, the atheist, at least recognises it's amazingly changed lives and changed the world. It's God's power. There was the pattern of the cross 2,000 years ago at Golgotha. But now, the pattern of the cross at Corinth and in Loughborough. This is verses 20 to 25. And that doesn't mention Loughborough. But of course, it's God's word to people in Corinth now coming to us in Loughborough. There is zero evidence that the Corinthians had stopped believing Jesus' death is what we need to be saved. There's no evidence they'd stop believing that, but there is a lot of evidence they were not recognising his death is the ongoing shape of Christian living and the ongoing shape of the church's work. And they weren't recognising that. So they needed to hear verse 21. Verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. The cross is not just something that happened 2,000 years ago. It's also the pattern for ongoing gospel work now. We've got to be willing to be thought foolish and weak. Just like the cross was thought foolish and weak. Our content sounds foolish to people. The preaching of the cross. Our method looks weak to people. The preaching of the cross. Did you get the two different emphases? They're both there in verse 21. Content, preaching of the cross. Method, preaching of the cross. They're both in verse 21. And Corinthian society was thoroughly unimpressed with them both. Verse 22. Verse 22, Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. Those were the two big groups in their world. And the Jews, a man preaching, unimpressive. Show us some miracles, that will impress us. The Greeks, a simple message about a man dying in our place, unimpressive. Give us some clever philosophy, that will impress us. You see... All sections of their society thought the preaching of the cross foolish and weak. What about our society? What about our society? What is the message of our society? Oh, it's got a lot of messages, but here's a pretty fundamental one to our society. You can do it. You've got it in you. You can be who you want to be. The real inner you is good and should be expressed. Life is about self-fulfilment. Find yourself and express who you are and whatever you do, don't restrain who you are. 
no, that will, that will repress you and be bad for you. And so the message of, our, of the cross is foolishness to our society. Because the message of the cross says the inner you is so wrong, you need to be born again. And you can't do it. You can't do it. Only the Son of God dying on the cross in your place could deal with your sin. You couldn't deal with it yourself. And so we are tempted to tone down what the Bible says about our sinfulness because it is just so out of line with our society. And we are tempted to tone down what the Bible says about God's judgment that requires a saviour to die in our place. And we're tempted to tone down Jesus say, saying, follow me the cross-carrying way. Or maybe even turn the gospel into another version of self-fulfilment. That's our society's message. What is our society's method? Oh, it's got lots of methods, but they all look pretty good. Big budget films that tell our society's gospel in an impressive, glamorous way. TED Talks. Have you ever listened to and watched TED Talks? Brilliant communicators in great venues with a lot of money so that they can have a good reach on the internet. Get them promoted. In other words, our society's methods are things that look impressive. And the church can think like the Corinthians. We need a version, we need society's version of strength and cleverness. So we've got to put our emphasis on getting the right image and vibe and branding and clever cultural analysis and the money, and the social media strategy, and the internet reach that will make the gospel successful. And so these are the things that in the 21st century church in the West, they're the things that get people excited, and get our focus, and get our attention, and our effort, and our confidence. In other words, we put confidence in what our society says has power, not in God's cross-shaped method that looks so weak and so foolish. We need the message of 1 Corinthians, verse 25. Verse 25. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. God's foolish and weak method... Preaching Christ crucified. Simply telling people about Jesus. And doing it in a chapter 2 verse 4 way. Chapter 2 verse 4. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. It doesn't mean that we're not careful how we say things. It doesn't mean that we don't think about removing stumbling blocks. It doesn't mean that we don't work at ways to get the message spread more widely. But where is our confidence? Where is our effort? Does more go on those things or on praying for the Spirit's power? And what is a powerful preacher like? A powerful preacher is not the same as an entertaining preacher. It's not not even a can-stir-up-your-emotions preacher. 
The Corinthians said about Paul, oh, he can write good letters, but when you hear him speak, he's unimpressive. He's not a good speaker. But he had the power of the Spirit. That means the Spirit changed hearts and lives. God's foolish and weak method is wise and strong because it does what nothing else can do. It reconciles people to God. It puts them in Christ. It gives them new hearts and it takes them to heaven forever. And nothing in the world other than God's method can do that. There's the pattern of the cross. The pattern. Next we have the people of the cross. Verse 26 to 31, the people of the cross. Now, first of all, I want us to notice the language that Paul uses to describe these people. First, let's go back to verse 24. Verse 24, he's describing these people. He says, but to those whom God has called. Who does he mean? When he talks about people God has called, who does he mean? That's a genuine question. Anyone going to give us an answer? Who does he means? Did someone say Christians? Yes, he means Christians. That's right. Can he mean all the people the gospel preaching has addressed? He can't because he's making a distinction. Verse 23, he said, There are people who've heard this preaching, and to them it's been a stumbling block. And they won't receive it and accept it. That's verse 23. Then he makes a distinction, but these other people. And he calls them the ones God called. Didn't the others hear the gospel? Yes, they did. They did hear it with their ears. They may even have been invited to turn to Christ. But then there are people who were called in a different way. You see, called in the New Testament usually means more than just the gospel was spoken to them. It usually means God's call had power that caused them to respond. Rather like when Jesus called Lazarus out of the grave and it had power beyond words that made him come out of the grave. Called in the New Testament usually means that sort of call. Holy Spirit power to make people respond. Okay, so uh, the people of the cross are called by God. And they are also, verse 27, notice the language, verse 27, they're also chosen. Verse 27, but God chose the foolish things of the world. I'm going to patronise you with a very simple question, but there is a reason. Who did the choosing? Thank you. I know it was a ridiculously simple question, but it's worth making the point. What is he choosing? What are these things he's choosing? People, thank you. God chooses people. It was a really simple question, but I just wanted to make sure we're clear on this. God chooses people. Now, it's not made a big deal of here in 1 Corinthians. It is just the understanding of the gospel that underlies the letter and all of Paul's writings. And the understanding is this. Salvation is God's work in us personally. 
God chooses people personally. Then he calls those people personally. And then, verse 30, he puts those people personally in Christ Jesus. Salvation is not just, I assent to some truths, make a decision, job done. Behind that is God chooses people personally, calls people personally, and puts people personally in Christ Jesus. Now, that's not the theme of 1 Corinthians 1. I just wanted to point out it is the underlying gospel there. What are the people like God chooses and calls and puts in Christ Jesus? What are they like? Do you notice? Well, actually, before we get into the verses, uh, I'll, I'll use an illustration to help us think about this. In the 1700s, there was a Christian leader who supported evangelists and supported preachers and started churches. Her name was Selina, Countess of Huntingdon. Now, if you know nothing else about her, you know by now she's posh, because you, you aren't the Countess of Huntingdon without being posh. She was an aristocrat. And she said that her salvation depended on a letter M. That was M for mother, not N for nobody. M. It depended on a letter M. What on earth was she talking about? Can you see in verse 26? Verse 26, why she said her salvation depended on a letter M. Verse 26. Because it says, not many of you were of noble birth. But it doesn't say, not any. And she said, she took great comfort in that letter M, that it's not many of noble birth, God calls. But it doesn't say, not any of noble birth. You see, God does, God does call some very upper class people, but it hasn't been many. Most of his people, he's called, have been very ordinary and weak and obscure and not famous, important people like Selina, Countess of Huntingdon. In fact, God specialises in choosing. Well, look at verse 27 and 28. What sort of people does God specialise in choosing? Verse 27, foolish people, weak people, lowly people, despised people, nobodies. Do you see, that's what it says. God specialises in them. And so, are you willing to be a foolish, weak, lowly, despised nobody? Doesn't sound very appetising. Most of God's chosen people have been foolish, weak, lowly, despised nobodies. I don't mean that they were complete idiots who couldn't tell you what two plus two is. I don't mean that they weren't very clever. I just mean that in the eyes of the world, God's people have generally been the foolish, weak, lowly, despised nobodies. And so many times when the church has gone wrong, it's been because Christians weren't willing to look foolish, weak, despised, lowly, nobodies. So often, that's been the problem when the church has gone wrong. So, for example, in Corinth, in Corinth, 
then eating in idle temples, which we heard about last year, and then dividing the church into different groupings, and then mistreating the poor at the Lord's Supper. And so many of the other problems were because they wanted to look strong and impressive to their society. They weren't willing to look foolish and weak. And it resulted in so many of their problems. And sadly, that's happened down across church history too frequently. It was when the church in the Roman Empire stopped being persecuted and started to get power and money and look impressive that it went corrupt. It was when the church in, the 18th, in 18th century England grasped after being a respectable place and got a respectable place in society that it became riddled with hypocrisy. And the church in Nazi Germany terribly compromised and disgraced the name of Christ because the majority of people in the church wanted to look impressive and be accepted by the people in their society who looked powerful and impressive. What about today? If it was in Corinth, if it's been so often in church history, isn't it likely to happen today too? Do you know who Sandy Toxvig is? Sandy Toxvig used to present Great British Bake Off. There's a lot of other things she's done as well, including recently she had tea with the Archbishop, the Archbishop of Canterbury. Do you know what she said to the Archbishop? She said, your church is out of step with society. Your church is out of step with society on sexual ethics. Now get in step with society. She said it a lot nicer than that because she's a, she's a very warm sort of person who can put things nicely. But she did say, you're out of step with society, get in step. In other words, turn from following Christ on sexual ethics. You need to be in step with society. When we want to be in step with society and accept it, we will in some way turn from following Christ. Because his way is cross-shaped and out of step with society. And it's not just the archbishop and those big issues. It's the everyday. Children at school. Adults at work. Students at university. Parents at the school gate. If you want to fit in and if you want to not look like a weak, foolish, cross-shaped person, well, you have to turn away from following Christ in some way. Because his way is cross-shaped. It's hard having people think you're weak and foolish, isn't it? It's not nice. What's going to keep us going? Knowing we've got something better. What is it? Verse 30. Better than the world's wisdom is this. Verse 30. Christ Jesus. He has become for us wisdom. That is... Our righteousness, holiness and redemption. What do righteousness, holiness and redemption do? They get us reconciled to God. What's verse 30 saying? Christ Jesus is our wisdom, wiser than anything in the world, because he can get us reconciled to God. 
And nothing our society boasts about can do that. And so, verse 31, so, verse 31, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. You might like to note down and later look up where that comes from. Don't don't bother about turning to it now, but later you might like to look up Jeremiah 9. It's a quote from verse 24. But if you were to look at verse 23, you'd find it so suitable. Because Jeremiah 9 says, Cleverness, strength, riches, the things society is impressed by, can't do this, enable you to know God. But Jesus, dying on a cross, can. That is the only thing worth boasting about. People of the cross have full confidence in him and only him. And so they follow the pattern of the cross. Are you a person of the cross? Your confidence is in him and him only and you're willing for people to think you're a foolish, weak, lowly, despised nobody. And so you follow the pattern of the cross. And you're eager that we as a church should not put all the emphasis on, get the right vibe, get our branding right, get the money in, but on the preaching of Christ crucified. Foolish, weak, and yet powerful. So, have you had your vaccination? Where did that come from? What am I talking about? Not the flu and COVID vaccination. Have you had this vaccination? Glory in the cross. Get a dose of that, not in your arm, get it in your heart. Get multiple boosters of that, you can't have too many boosters of that. Glory in the cross. Because, you see, that is the vaccination against getting infected by our society and its attitudes. Glorying in the cross is a necessity so we don't just believe in the cross to get saved, but we live cross-shaped lives. We don't rely on the world's methods. We don't feel the need to look impressive, but we trust in Christ crucified and we preach Christ crucified. Glorying in the cross is your vaccination against getting infected by the world. We're going to sing. We're going to sing a very familiar song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. And I've chosen it for one reason, which is verse 3. When you get to verse 3, notice it says, I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom. But I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection.